Hello and welcome to Eccentric Earth. I'm your host Amy Walker and joining me to delve into a story from history is my good friend Han Birch. Hello. Hi, thanks for coming back again Han. Thanks for having me. Um, Last time was an absolute blast so I'm glad to be back. Well hopefully you'll have as much fun this time around as well because I certainly enjoyed it. Well you know that's that's a lot to live up to. You don't want to make promises you can't keep. (laughs) Okay I'm ready. Elizabeth Jane Cochrane was born on May 5th, 1864. She was born at Cochrane Mills, which is now part of the Pittsburgh suburb of Burrell Township. Her father, Michael Cochrane, started out as a labourer and mill worker before buying the local mill and most of the land surrounding it. He later became a merchant, postmaster and associate justice at Cochrane Mills, which was named after him. Mm, so back when... People were still able to actually attain the American dream then. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And they could actually work and get money and then become more affluent than than how they started life. Yeah, he did very Mm -hmm. well for himself. Michael married twice. He had 10 children with his first wife, Catherine Murphy, and five more children, including Elizabeth, with his second wife, Mary Jane Kennedy. My God. Yeah. God, some people are breeders, aren't they? Fifteen, <laughs> fifteen. Ch- it's the it's the it's the women. I feel sorry for ten children. <laughs> so she's one. She's one of fifteen. Yes, from his wow. second wife. Yeah. As a young girl, Elizabeth was often called Pinky because she so frequently wore that colour. As she became a teenager, she wanted to portray herself as more sophisticated, and dropped the nickname and changed her surname to Cochrane. Michael Cochrane's death presented a grave financial detriment to his family and left them without a will, and thus no legal claim to his estate. Oh, shit. Yep, not good. So his, so his, so he married twice, but his second family didn't have his surname. They had the mum's surname. Because mm-hmm. he changed her name to Cochrane, which would indicate that maybe it wasn't a legal marriage or something. I'm not entirely sure. No. Especially if she if she wasn't if um, her and that side of the family weren't in the will, mm. it's possible that they they were his second family, but he didn't marry her until whatever happened to his first wife happened. So mm. they could be his children, but technically bastards. In an effort to support her now single mother, Elizabeth enrolled in the Indiana Normal School, a small college in Indiana, Pennsylvania, where she studied to become a teacher. However, not long after beginning her courses there, financial constraints forced Elizabeth to take her hopes for a higher education away. Mm. After leaving the school, she moved with her mother to the nearby city of Pittsburgh in 1880, where together they ran a boarding house. A newspaper column entitled What Girls Are Good For in the Pittsburgh (laughs) Dispatch... Sorry. (laughs) 
This is 1880s. Oh, well, that's a, that's a non-contentious headline, isn't it? <laughs> Am I going to get up on my high horse and my soapbox during this episode, Amy? Um, no, I think this episode will make you feel good. Okay, I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> the article implied that girls were only good for birthing children and keeping house. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. That's what that's what people think nowadays too, isn't it? <laughs> ah, how we've progressed as a society. Uh, <laughs> except they didn't. They, I mean, they said birthing children, but they meant fucking birthing children and keeping house. Yeah, that's what wife stands for: washing, ironing, fucking, etc. <laughs> oh dear! If only some people didn't actually believe that. Just, just like you know, caveat that was that was me being exceedingly ironic, and yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I just told such a sexist fucking joke. Oh, don't worry. It'll stay in. Yeah, I know it fucking will. That's why I'm worried. (laughs) The article prompted Elizabeth to write a response under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl. Hmm. The paper's editor, George Madden, was impressed with her passion and ran an advertisement asking the author to identify herself. When Cochrane introduced herself to the editor he offered her the opportunity to write a piece for the newspaper, again under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl. Oh, well, that's pretty cool. Mm. That she didn't show up and he went, oh, oh, you're a female. Be gone with you, wench. Well, clearly he realises that, you know, if a good writer's a good writer, it doesn't matter what gender they are. True. Her first article for the dispatch, entitled The Girl Puzzle, was about how divorce affected women. In it, she argued for reform of divorce laws. Madam was impressed again and offered her a full-time job at the paper. Mm. So that, to me, makes it sound like perhaps Cochrane had married his her mum and then divorced her. And the fact that she was left destitute was because the divorce laws favoured just thinking, thinking out loud. Because what other she's unmarried at this point. So what real life experience would she have of, of divorce mm. if, if that hadn't been what had happened to her mum? Yeah. Yeah, could be. Yeah, Unfortunately, I, I couldn't find much information on her, her parents. Uh, it's possible that that is what happened, yeah. Mm. It was customary for women who were newspaper writers at the time to use a pen name. The editor chose Nellie Bly, adopted from the title character in a popular song. Do you know what? I have, I have, a, really, I have a real inkling that I actually know. That, that, that name actually rings a bell. I feel like if I heard the song, I would actually know it, and I don't know why. Probably just my brain being weird again. As a writer, Elizabeth focused her early work for the Pittsburgh Dispatch on the lives of working women, writing a series of investigative articles on women factory workers. Oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. However, the newspaper soon received complaints from factory owners about her writing. Yeah, obviously. As such, she was reassigned to the women's pages to cover fashion... (laughs) society, gardening, and the usual role for women journalists. She became dissatisfied at this. Well, yeah, well, that's just a man going and seeing another man and going, you've got a girl who's speaking out. I don't know why everyone is speaking in a posh British accent. My, <laughs> Unfortunately, the only American accent I can do is Southern Belle, so it doesn't really work for Pittsburgh. Um <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna bring out my southern, my, my southern bell, especially since I've been watching preacher. Um, um, yeah, that's just somebody with power and influence saying, "Move that girl along." We don't want everyone to know that we treat our employees absolutely shit. I mean, stuff like that never happens nowadays, does it? No. 
No. It, it is shocking how little things have changed in 130 years. <laughs> Elizabeth then travelled to Mexico to serve as a foreign correspondent. Cool. Still only 21, she spent nearly half a year reporting the lives and customs of the Mexican people. Her dispatches were later published in book form as Six Months in Mexico. That's pretty cool. Mm. I'm assuming that, that the reason that that happened was because she moaned about being part of the women's pages and Madden didn't want to lose her. So just went, oh, I'm just going to like, you know, pack you off out of the country so I can still get the benefit of your good work without you nagging in my ear. Yeah. It's like, well, we send her to Mexico. At worst, she's going to annoy the Mexicans. And we don't give a shit about the Mexicans. So it's all good. Yeah. But they were obviously interested enough to to have her go down there for six months and, and write about their lives. So mm. In one of her reports, she protested the imprisonment of a local journalist for citing the Mexican government, then a dictatorship under Proferino Diaz. When Mexican authorities learned of Elizabeth's report, they threatened her with arrest, prompting her to flee the country. Safely home, she accused Diaz of being a tyrannical Tsar, suppressing the Mexican people and controlling the press. Sounds like a fairly accurate summation, considering that he was she was going to be arrested for whatever she said, and she's a member of the press. Usually an indication that there's no free speech when journalists start getting arrested. Burdened again with theatre and arts reporting, Elizabeth left the Pittsburgh Dispatch in 1887 for New York City. Penniless after four months, she talked her way into the offices of Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, The New York World. Ah, I've heard of him. Yeah, that is the same Joseph Pulitzer who the prize is named after. That's interesting, though. The, the Pulitzer is like the number one journalistic prize that you can win, but the paper doesn't exist anymore. Unless it changed, unless it, it, it is one of either it's the Times or the is it like New York Times and New York, New York Post. Yeah, New York Post. Um, maybe it changed its name. Um, no, the, the newspaper actually went out of publication in the 1930s. Now working at the New York World, she took an undercover assignment for which she agreed to feign insanity to investigate reports of brutality and neglect at the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell Island. Wow. So she, she deliberately got herself put in a mental asylum in 1890? Yeah, that's correct. That is, that's brave. That's massively, massively brave. Oh, it's massively brave. The th kind of thing that she'd have to put herself through for that investigation. It took a lot of courage to do it. Yeah, I'm wondering, have you seen, because I, I think it's slightly, I think it's dated later, but one of the series of American Horror is a female journalist who, who does the same thing. But I think that's maybe the 50s. No, I've never seen it myself, although I do know of it. Um, it's possible that they actually took inspiration for that storyline from Elizabeth's real-life experience. Yeah, maybe so. After a night spent practising expressions in front of a mirror, Elizabeth checked herself into a boarding house. She refused to go to bed that evening, telling the boarders that she was afraid of them and that they looked crazy. Yeah. They soon decided that she was crazy and the next morning summoned the police. <laughs> Taken into a courtroom, she claimed to be suffering from amnesia. The judge concluded that she had been drugged. Several doctors then examined her. They all declared her insane. All declaring her insane? Yeah. Okay. Positively demented, said one. <laughs> I consider it a hopeless case. She needs to be put where someone will take care of her. The head of the insane pavilion at Bellevue Hospital pronounced her undoubtedly insane. Oh my god! Either she's an amazing actress, or they're just not very good at their jobs. <laughs> 
The case of the pretty crazy girl attracted media attention. Who is this insane girl? asked the New York Sun. <laughs> the New York Times wrote of the mysterious waif and the wild haunted looking her eyes and her desperate cry of, I can't remember, I can't remember. Oh, the editor of the New York World is going to be pretty pissed at this, that she's she's attempted to go undercover to, to do this, and then she's getting all, me, all the media attention from other newspapers who are making money off her, when the New York World isn't yet making money off her. Not to mention the fact that if everybody, including the head of the asylum, thinks that she is incurably insane, she's going to find it difficult to get out. Because getting into an insane asylum is a lot easier than getting out in those days. I think we both learned from hearing about Boston Corbett that it's quite easy to escape from a mental asylum in America. <laughs> Committed to the asylum, Elizabeth experienced the deplorable conditions firsthand. The food consisted of gruel broth, spoiled beef, bread that was little more than dried dough, and dirty, undrinkable water. <sighs> the dangerous patients were tied together with ropes. The patients were made to sit for much of the day on hard benches with scant protection from the cold. Waste was all around the eating places. Rats crawled all over the hospital. Oh, lovely. The bath water was frigid and buckets of it were poured over their heads. Ugh. The nurses behaved obnoxiously and abusively, telling the patients to shut up and beating them if they did not. Which is exactly the way to treat people with mental illness. Speaking with her fellow patients, Elizabeth was convinced that some were as sane as she was. Well, that's that's very, very likely to be true. Um, is she in is she in a kind of a mixed environment with males and females, do you know? Or is it was it females only? It was a female only ward, yeah. Mm. Because because back then women were put into asylums if they if they got pregnant out of wedlock, that was a reason to put somebody away. Um and, you know, the whole notion of hysteria was much abounding and yeah, plenty plenty of people were, were locked up because they were a nuisance rather than actually had mental illness. Yeah, it was pretty much any man who wanted to get rid of a woman, all he had to do was say that she was insane and she'd quite likely be carted off to an asylum. Mm -hmm. On the effects of her experience, Elizabeth wrote, What, excepting torture, would produce insanity quicker than this treatment? Here is a class of women sent to be cured. I would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action, which has proven their ability to take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up and make her sit from 6am till 8pm on straight back benches, do not allow her to talk or move during these hours, give her no reading and let her know nothing of the world or its doings, give her bad food and harsh treatment and see how long it takes to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. That's a very, that's actually, a, that's an incredibly astute observation that, that not only is, is it not treatment, it's actually the sort of treatment that would, yeah, that would actually break. It wasn't designed to be a cure, it was designed to break spirit, but break spirit can often come with, with mental illness. Mm. And it's possible that did happen to some of the women in the asylum with Elizabeth. Yeah. After 10 days... The asylum released Elizabeth at the New York World's behest. Her report, later published in book form as 10 Days in a Madhouse, caused a sensation, prompting the asylum to implement reforms and brought her lasting fame. Led by the New York Assistant District Attorney Vernon M. Davis, with Elizabeth assisting him, the asylum investigation resulted in a number of changes in New York City's Department for Public Charities, 
which oversees the city's hospitals. Good. These changes, per the recommendation of jury members, include a large appropriation of funds for the care of the mentally ill patients, additional physician appointments for stronger supervision of nurses and other healthcare workers, and regulations to prevent overcrowding and fire hazards at the city's medical facilities. Wow, that's some pretty decent reforms. And it was that it was the jury, so it was the members of the public that that obviously heard the cases, but but you would also assume that most of them would have would have read the articles about Elizabeth when she went in and then read her expose when she came out and kind of been affected by that as well. Yeah, yeah, she's ended up doing some big big changes. Elizabeth followed her Blackwell's expose with similar investigative work, including editorials detailing the improper treatment of individuals at New York jails and factories, corruption in the state legislature, and other first-hand accounts of malfeasance. Wow. She also interviewed and wrote pieces on several prominent figures of the time, including the likes of Emma Goldman and Susan B. Anthony. She's a pretty... yeah, this is... this is... this is awesome. Why have I never heard of this woman? Yeah, she's she's really cool. Yeah, and um, I wonder whether she's the first female investigative journalist. She is one of the the first major ones, yeah. Yeah. And um, she is the first person to do what I'm about to say next, though, so that's going to be something of note. So hold on to my hat. Yeah. <laughs> In 1888, Elizabeth suggested to her editor at the New York World that she should take a trip around the world, attempting to turn the fictional Around the World in 80 Days into fact for the first time. Whoa! Awesome. A year later, at 9.40am on November 14th, 1889, and with two days' notice, she boarded the Augusta Victoria, a steamer of the Hamburg-American line, and began her journey. She took with her the dress she was wearing, a sturdy overcoat, several changes of underwear and a small travel bag carrying her toiletry essentials. And you'd hope a notebook. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fuck, paper, damn it! Does anyone have a pen? (laughs) Pencil, anything, chalk. How was your trip like that? Oh, it was brilliant. On day day one, we um, did something. I can't can't quite remember what it was, though. She carried most of her money, £200 in English banknotes and gold, as well as some American currency, in a bag tied around her neck. The New York newspaper Cosmopolitan sponsored its own reporter, Elizabeth Bisland, to beat the time of both Phineas Fogg and Elizabeth. (laughs) So it's now turning into the races of the Elizabeths. Yep. That's interesting. Bisland would travel the opposite way around the world, starting at the same day as Elizabeth took off. To sustain interest in the story, the world organised a Nellie Bly guessing match in which the readers were asked to estimate Elizabeth's arrival time to the second, with the grand prize consisting of, at first, a free trip to Europe and later on spending money for the trip. I'm not particularly hot on geography, but New York is on the coast, so if Elizabeth C went off on steamer, that means that Elizabeth B has got to cross america which would actually make it easier for her to post dispatches back to her newspaper mm-hmm. which so yeah so so the new york world would have had to have kind of created hope in some other way because you wouldn't have obviously had heard anything from elizabeth c until she reached port in whatever the next landfall is i don't know <laughs> <laughs> during her travels around the world elizabeth went through england france where she met jules verne cool the Suez Canal, Colombo, 
the Strait Settlement of Penang and Singapore, Hong Kong and Japan, the development of effective submarine cable networks and the electric telegraph allowed Elizabeth to send short progress reports, although longer dispatches had to travel by regular post and were thus delayed by several weeks. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth travelled using steamships and the existing railroad systems, which caused occasional setbacks, particularly on the Asian leg of her race. During these stops, she visited a leper colony in China, and in Singapore, she bought a monkey. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> hello, hello, Miss Cochrane. Would you like to do some charity work? No, nope. I want to buy a monkey. I'm very bored. <laughs> I really need some, some companionship for the, for the next leg of my journey. I want a fucking monkey. I hope she made it wore little outfits. I hope she didn't. <laughs> As a result of rough weather on her Pacific crossing, she arrived in San Francisco on the White Star Line ship RMS Oceanic on January 21st, two days behind schedule. Oh, intense now. (laughs) However, after the world owner Pulitzer chartered a private train to bring her home, (laughs) she arrived back in New Jersey on January 25th, 1890 at 3.51pm. (laughs) <laughs> so, so hmm, bend it. well no I mean I guess there were no rules it was just can you get back in that yeah. time and he just went shit <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to have to hire a train which is apparently something you could do then just over 72 days after her departure from Hoboken Elizabeth was back in New York she had circumnavigated the globe travelling alone for almost the entire journey what so the, so the monkey doesn't count <laughs> it said for almost her entire journey. (laughs) Bisland was, at the time, still crossing the Atlantic, only to arrive in New York four and a half days later. Uh Ah, loser. She also had a misconnection and had to board a slow old ship, the Bothnia, in place of a fast ship. Elizabeth's journey was a world record. Awesome. But it's it's a bit sad for for Elizabeth B, because, you know, under other circumstances... She has just circumnavigated the globe as a lone female in the 1890s. That's still a massive achievement. And she's going to turn up to New York to like no ticket tape parade, no banners, just going, yeah, you came second. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I did it. Yeah, so did someone else four days ago. Get over it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Old news, Lizzie, old news. (laughs) You could have done it four days faster. So, you know. In 1895, Elizabeth married millionaire manufacturer Robert Seaman. Sorry. You're, you're sniggering at Seaman. Of course I am. Of course I am. I read, the of my guests. I read a book recently by um, a guy whose name is Charles Mann, but he decided to put his middle initial in his name, so his name is Charles C. Mann. And I was like, what's the C really necessary? <laughs> Because it's a really interesting oh. non-fiction book. And then every time I pick it up, it makes me laugh. <laughs> because I'm a child. Maybe that's why you did it. <laughs> Elizabeth was 31 and Seaman was 73 when they married. Okay. Due to her husband's failing health, she retired from journalism and succeeded her husband as the head of Ironclad Manufacturing Company, which made steel containers such as milk cans and boilers. So she became CEO of his company, basically? Yes. Wow. Yeah. That I mean I mean that seem that actually seems like that she married him because she did actually lo- that she loved him. 
Yeah, it's it's entirely possible. I know people would probably instantly jump into she probably did it for the money, but she was incredibly famous at this point. Did she? Yeah, exactly. That? You know, she was incredibly famous and incredibly independent. And if she didn't, and if she just wanted his money, she wouldn't have quit journalism just because he was he was ill and helped run his business. Yeah. I don't know. I like her, so I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. Elizabeth continued to run the company following her husband's death and also became an inventor, receiving the US patent 697553 for a novel milk can and US patent 703711 for a stacking garbage can, both under her married name of Elizabeth Cochran Seaman. Whilst in charge of the company, she put her social reforms into action and ironclad employees enjoyed several perks unheard of at the time, including fitness gyms, libraries and healthcare. Wow. Ultimately, the cost of these benefits began to mount and drain her inheritance. For a time, she was one of the leading women industrialists in the United States, Mm. but negligence and embezzlement by a factory manager resulted in ironclad manufacturing going bankrupt. (laughs) So she was obviously making less money than she could have done because she was treating her employees well, which is sadly not the way people think. But then they went bankrupt anyway because the manager was a dick and stole loads of money. Pretty much, yeah. (sighs) After ironclad manufacturing went out of business, she returned to reporting. She wrote stories on, on Europe's Eastern Front during World War I and notably covered the Women's Suffrage Parade of 1913. Under the headline, Suffragists are Men's Superiors, <laughs> her parade story accurately predicted that be 1920 before women in the United States would be given the right to vote. Hmm. Now, you see, that, I, find, I find that very interesting, that, you know, she's, she, has, she is a woman who has been in male-dominated professions her entire career, and so she was obviously in a very well-placed, she was obviously very well-placed to actually gauge the attitudes of powerful men. Mm. Elizabeth died of pneumonia at St. Mark's Hospital in New York in 1922, just two years after returning to journalism at the age of 57. She was interred at a modest grave at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx in New York City. Wow. So she was one of, she was... An investigative journalist. She was the first woman to circumnavigate the globe. Mm-hmm. And she was an inventor. She was an inventor. She was a social reformer. A company CEO. Company CEO. Prominent industrialist. And she owned a monkey. And she owned a monkey. What happened to the monkey? I assuming um, he took over the journalism for her. <laughs> hang on a minute. Hang on. Ha- hang on. Hang on just a, just, a, just a moment. Are you saying that monkeys... I mean, you know, she wasn't working for she wasn't working for the Daily Mail. Most papers can't be written by monkeys. That's true. Perhaps he was the factory manager who embezzled all the money. <laughs> she was just like, oh, I know you're stealing, but I can't stay mad at you, monkey. <laughs> With your little bowler oh. hat and your little briefcase. Because that is the only acceptable outfit for a monkey is businessman monkey. So, yeah, that's that's Elizabeth Cochran, also known as Nellie Bly. Yeah. A really kick-ass journalist. What an amazing woman. Yeah. Granted, not as mad as um, the last episode, but... No, but, you know, it's it's not all about... It's not the crazy. It's about the interesting and about <laughs> people that we haven't heard of, but we really should have done. So thank you for introducing me to her. And, and um, I, now have, I now have homework to do. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad this is another... Weirdly enough, this is the second 
Elizabeth that's led to reforms in institutions that I've done and both times the person I've done the episode with have decided they're going to go and look more into the person. Yeah, it's very and it's very interesting that they've both been female social reformers and they are very unwell known. Very unwell known. Yeah. Very not very well known would be the English way of saying that. <laughs> so yeah, thank you thank you very much Amy for introducing me to her. No, you're you're more than welcome. Thank you very much for um for coming onto the show. No problem, you know I'll do it anytime. Awesome. If you enjoyed listening to the episode, you can find us on social media we have a twitter which you can find by going to at eccentric underscore earth we're on facebook and instagram as well both under eccentric earth the social media accounts are kept up to date with new information about upcoming episodes as well as history facts that are posted every single day if you've got any suggestions for topics you'd like to see us cover or any feedback you can contact us by email by going to eccentric earth at outlook.com and you can find the show on all major podcast providers so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and if you can leave us a review that would be greatly appreciated so thank you once again Han for joining me thanks for having me Amy that's okay and uh, we'll see you all next time bye bye take care bye bye (laughs) 